in this episode with Dr. Sean Barkley. Patients don't always appreciate that actually the first, you know, the way they walk in and the first few words they say will often tell me a lot about how the consult's going to be. Mm. Was that in future, what's going to happen to us all? And so picture this, guys, is you walk into a, into a, 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 a skin center center, you'll stand on a disc and there'll be two drones that will fly around your body, with, you know, like at the airport when they're scanning you. And they'll scan your entire body for moles and lesions. And then you'll kind of walk out with the diagnosis. And that's where the technology is going. And that's pretty impressive. But nowhere in my training, to get back to your point, was I ever trained to see a patient and make a diagnosis in five minutes. I just do not understand that. I call it microwave medicine. Yes, yes. In the sense. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I've invited you on to here, and thank you for coming, by the way, uh, for accepting the invitation and being here. But the reason I've asked you is because I see you as a general practitioner of pretty much everything. <laughs> right? So you talk about, you mentioned this, this other person and knowledge. You're a fountain of knowledge. You, you know, you and I have had lots, lots of conversations over the years. Um, and... They've gone on probably far too long at times. Yeah, absolutely. I've totally probably got you into trouble at work. So, uh, actually, usually it's with the wifey at home. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, I think you know, genuinely, I've, I've got a lot to be grateful for for having you as my GP. Um, okay. Uh, not just for your, should we say, medical ability, but the way that you are as a person, the way that you interact with people. I don't, and I'm sure it's not only me. I know it's not only me. Um goes above and beyond what I've experienced in my lifetime as, as being a, what you would expect from the medical fraternity, if that's the right phrase. And, I, and I, th I genuinely believe that a lot of that helps people's health and well-being. I think, you know, obviously your medical advice and everything that you, you give is, uh, well, it's served me pretty well, right? Uh, and I have to say, I'm, you know, we might get into um, you've probably saved my life along the way. So I've got a lot to be grateful for. And I think um, a lot of that comes from your character and the person that you are and the, the sense of humor that you've got and the knowledge and the, you know, the, the tangents that you go off, which, you know, if anyone who knows me is listening to this will, will appreciate that, why I would appreciate that, because I've got some tangents myself. So that's, that's why I've asked you to be here, because I, I really enjoy your company and I really... Every time I meet with you, uh, for whatever reason, 
I come away uh, better for that engagement and more knowledgeable, more aware, and actually I've got a smile on my face. It's very kind, and I have to say, it's it. In order for it to work and for, to do this job for thirty-five years, it has to work both ways. I sort of. I learned from my patients. I mean, not only about radishes, and <laughs> <laughs> but I'm dead serious. I think, I think my, one of my most favourite sayings in history is Socrates, who said, "You know, a life unexamined is a life not worth living." Mm. I think it's beholden on us all to self-reflect, and and uh, just to digress for a moment, one of the things about the way I am is that. I think when I talk. I didn't know this, and I'll get back to my original point in a moment, but I didn't know this until I went um, in my early days. I was the CME facilitator for the Western Bay Twenty GP group. Uh, that's exactly you. I just facilitated continuum medical education programs. Mm. And in order to be able to do that, I was required by the college to visit Wellington once a year and go through a workshop of how, how to educate adults. or you know, um, And they were usually run by the college, but also they had visiting educators from Wellington University. You know. mm. And uh, one of the things we had to do, I, it, it was about learning about yourself. And at one point in, in a particular workshop, uh, you had to sit on your hands and you had to listen to the person next to you tell their story briefly. And uh, my partner at the time was a, um, a, a physician who, who, who was uh, part of a hospice and did, um, you know, sort of end-of-life care. Mm. And um, uh, while I was talking, um, and, then, and then the person had to analyze you after you had finished your, your talk, and she said, you think when you talk. And, you know, that, I mean, I was in my... I think I was in my late forties at that point in time, and and you can tell from that statement I'm no longer in my forties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the camera might say different, but <laughs> um, I mean, it's a pity you don't have smell on these cameras. What's just doing that? Well, because we, I smell really nice today. I can't smell very nice. Jean Paul Gaultier. Am I allowed to plug? No, that's my smell. And. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, that was just, you know, it almost brought me to tears because that, uh, you know, I've always been a talker and that men aren't supposed to talk. You know, they're supposed to be these tall, I was missing there, tall, silent types. That, that's what considered. And I've always been a talker. And it bothered me at times um, because I understood that listening is important. But, but then for this physician who clearly is you know, participating in a part of medicine of listening to people as they're dying. It was so insightful. It was like a moment where I felt okay about myself for the first time, mm. that, that I realized why I talk. I tend to think while I'm talking. Mm. And and surprisingly enough, um, in that process, I listened, but not necessarily always to the words that people are saying, but about a million other cues that they send me. And they'll say the oddest word when they come in that will set the tone for me and what I ought to be aiming at, what they're trying to get me to hear. The very pa Patients don't always appreciate that actually the first 
you know, the way they walk in and the first few words they say will often tell me a lot about how the consult's going to be. So on Friday, for instance, just to give you an example, I saw two gentlemen that clearly are battling um, their divorcees, they're on their own, they're in very physical jobs, uh, late in their 50s, they're doing very, they're tired, and they're grumpy. And, um, and the way they walked in, you know, I, I'd kept them waiting for my usual five or ten minutes. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I, can't, I can't lie to Steve, actually. Um, um, you know, my usual half an hour. Yeah. And, um, and so one was a bit grumpy, and I, I thought I have to try and not dwell on that for him and get him to a place where, where he's feeling better. Now, I didn't sort of say, say it like in those words, I have to get him to, but I, it sets the tone um, and that I worked very hard to get him to see that he was not alone in that feeling because mm-hmm. that's because he, he is on his own, but I wanted him to to feel like he wasn't the only one feeling that way. Um, and and also to try and get him to feel a little bit better by the time he left. And and that takes quite a bit of energy. It's not purely by accident. I have to, first of all, because the one walked in, he was grumpy that he had been waiting. So I have to take that. You know, his time's important. And I just absorb that without without letting it make me grumpy. Because then, yeah. then you just got two grumpy white guys to <laughs> that's just doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and so I, you know, absorb it and then I had to do a reset and try and get him, okay, you're here now. Now let's see if we can help. And I I I you know, I don't know if it's the right word to use, pride, but I was pleased to say that he left laughing. <laughs> and then I he felt a little bit better. Yeah. And I take that I mean, I take that it's a very old fashioned idea though. You know, I don't see myself as a service provider. I genuinely see my, myself as a healer um, in, in the general sense of the word, not, not grandiosely, but just, you know, they pay me money. They come in, they sit in my waiting room very often. I kind of think that's what I'm there to do. I mean, I can certainly do things medically, but oddly enough, at times, that's really the simple part. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the other stuff that... Is really wearing them down, and um, and that's where they need they need to smile about um, the absurdity of life mm. and how upside down things can be. Uh, there's a few things in there that you, you talked about. <clears throat> I want to pick up on if I can. I, mean, I think sure. taking the time to spend with people and read those other things other than the verbal words that are coming out of their mouth is really important in in having an understanding. So you know, if you're not taking the time, and there are other Doctors, as we know, that don't. Oh yeah, um, it's a numbers game. Then actually, you are just looking black and white at the. What are they telling you? And you know, you're basing your diagnosis on what they tell you. Yeah, you might kind of poke, poke around a little bit. We'll talk about that. But um, you know, you a lot of what I suppose goes into your intuition about what could be wrong would come from that engagement. And if people aren't prepared to engage that way. Make sure job all had, surely. Um, yeah, I mean, and sometimes you have to be. Uh, first of all, you have to be quite humble about things. Um, not everybody wants that, you know. Uh, not ev- so you get the patience you deserve. If 
question. I mean, if you if you stay in one place like I have now for for one surgery in the one office twenty years or, or more, and um, you know the patients gravitate towards you, and I'm, you know, when you start out in this game, you want to be everything to every patient. You realize you just can't. I just I cannot be a five minute doctor, and some people really do want a five minute doctor, and I. I, I think they deserve, if that's what they want, that's what we should try and provide. But that was the joy of general practice in that it used to be uh, a profession that, or, or, or calling that allowed for individual doctors to show the individual personality. I mean, we've talked about this before, how unfortunate it is that we all are being asked to be sort of generic, you know, sort of follow guidelines and, you know, and, and follow sort of a prescript and that that the days of allowing your intuition or clinical judgment to prevail is are fading away. Um, you know, the, you know, the computer is taking over. Where you just give us, you know, a whole bunch of symptoms and you get a diagnosis, and it's correct. I mean, it, it makes me lead on to just where we're heading, um, and and it's like a fun story. I in some because I like gadgetry, and I mean, and I'm doing this podcast and I'm surrounded by really cool gadgets and I <laughs> I hope that when I leave I'll get like a free sample of gadgets just because <laughs> there's so many in the room. Um, if anything's missing you know where it yeah, goes. Yeah uh, and um, so I, w I went for an update on on skin cancer uh, you know diagnosis and management and it was in Auckland. It's a good gig if you can get it. I mean there was mm. four specialists and there were a hundred GPs and we all paid two thousand dollars, and it was less than two days' work for the specialist. Sorry, how, how many pay in two thousand? Hundred. Yeah. Uh, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah. good money for them. Anyway, um, I'm I'm not sure that I'd necessarily agree that that medical education should cost that much because that cost is obviously passed on. Mm. Um, but that's a discussion for later on. <laughs> um, but. Uh, Professor Rosenthal, I think it'd be okay if I mention his name because he is a very famous Australian dermatologist, uh, was telling us about the fact that they, okay, there were some, um, you know, there have been some questions about the, the study and its methodology, but it's still fun to talk about. So what they did was they got 30 um, dermatologists well-known around the world to look at, uh, you know, a couple of hundred slides. I don't know what the numbers were. And then to make a diagnosis of the mole or lesion they were looking at on the slides, mm. and then they had a computer look at the at the, at the same um, you know lesions, and and lo and behold, the thirty specialists got it right in fifty something percent, fifty eight percent, and the computer got it right in ninety four percent. Now, since that time, I've had a discussion with one of the professors involved, and there were some questions about how they measured that. But it was still quite uh, impressive. So what they did was they then then thought, well, how could we improve this? That, that was specialist dermatologists, okay, not general practitioners. And, um, and so they got two people to look at each slide and have a discussion about it. It's really quite important um, because it goes to what we're talking about, communication and reading other things and reading of other people. Uh, the spe two specialists looking at a slide then uh, got close to what the computer got, doing it on its own. So, so then they wanted to know what was the interaction between the two specialists. You see? What was going on there that they could improve their diagnosis? 
by nearly 50%. Mm. But, um, and that's really a little bit about what we're saying, where you allow for that flow of ideas and you learn. And that's what I was alluding to earlier when I learned from my, my patients. They, if you have a long, you, you'll learn and you'll realize when you're saying something, whether you're off mark or, and you just, as the conversation goes on, you go, okay, you pick up on cues and then you, you try and come to the correct diagnosis. And, um, but then it led to, okay, so, so that's a fairly impressive piece of software. Mm-hmm. And so, and they've decided that, that there are some glitches because there's some ethical kind of considerations that should the machine get it wrong, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. who do you sue, you know, yeah. and who's responsible? So, so it, it's not like something that's going to arrive on your doorstep soon, but a lot of skin apps are starting to employ similar algorithms that you take a photograph of your mole. And, uh, what they have found, though, is that two people looking at a person's skin is is an accurate way of making a correct diagnosis just clinically without having to resort to surgery. And that's, that's encouraging. Mm-hmm. So Professor Rodenthal admitted that he has a nurse that with him that he's trained and they examine a person's body, you know, first the back, then, you know, the front, and they talk while they're doing it, and that's how he conducts his own. So he ended the conversation, the part I was trying to get to when we're talking about gadgets, was that in future, what's going to happen to us all, and so picture this, guys, is you walk into a, into a, 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 a skin center center, you'll stand on a disc, and there'll be two drones that will fly around your body with, you know, like at the airport when they're scanning you. Mm-hmm. And they'll scan your entire body for moles and lesions. And then you'll kind of walk out with the diagnosis. And that's where the technology is going. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah. If you can kind of walk into a place, get scanned by a couple of drones that will fly around you, and then walk out with a complete map of your skin lesions. I don't know. I just quite like that. I yeah. think that's really Maybe good. Maybe you could. You don't need to go anywhere. The drones could fly you to your place. Well, there you go. Um, quite like drones. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've had one, but I lost it. The day was gone. <laughs> I was practicing, practicing with my made in China do- uh, drone, of course, because mm. you know, um, and um, I was getting pretty good. I, I was inside breaking things with it because I thought I didn't want to lose it, so I was flying it inside, and then I got brave enough, and. And then it flew into the neighbor's garden, and I thought I saw that land. Yeah. And uh, six years later, I'm still looking for it. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. So, yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because, as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend the company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team 
or visit the website at chap.net.nz. So, so let's go back. Let's go back a step to the conversations. Yes, because I'm. I, look, I've got I've had my own experiences with Aston. You've been my GP for a long time now, so I'm harking back a little bit. Sure, but you know, I, I remember my first experience of of like being surprised by the level of service. You, you said you're not sure whether it's a service or not, but the level of service that I perceived from a, a GP in the UK, where I walked in before I actually sat down, the fact that I was blowing my nose on the way in, he, he pre he'd already prescribed me <laughs> um, antibiotics before I'd actually sat down. I was like, hey, wait a minute, I haven't said anything yet. And uh, yeah, there you go, take that. And it was literally in and out. It was like a revolving door. And uh, and I just thought to myself, yeah, that's... For no, me, look, you know, I, I feel a lot better, and I'm sure a lot of other people do. Sometimes you can be a bit anxious about health things or perceived health issues. Um, and it's like the placebo type effect. I don't know what it is, but you come and talk to your GP and if you can have a conversation about it and you get a level of reassurance, you walk out and actually you are healthier as a, as a result of it. You feel so much better. And as the stress goes away and as a consequence, the following day, you actually, you come right. And it's, it's through that conversation, it's through that interaction, I think, that sometimes in some situations um, you don't get with other kind of by the, yeah. by the book well, it's a puzzle. So uh, a couple of things I can pick up on there. So first of all, it's about your training. And I had really excellent training. And uh, I think a, a story that points to that is Professor Porter, who was my microbiology student, uh, a, a professor who, who taught microbiology and in, uh, in your third year uh, of your medical degree. Now, I had already, as you know, done a few other things, a few degrees before that. And... Um, and so I was a senior student, and he, I, so I wasn't afraid of asking questions in class. Um, and he always used to call all his students doctor in our third year. Mm. So, and, you know, I'd stick up my hand, and he, and my favorite story of him was, um, I'd stick up my hand and say, uh, Prof, uh, how long do I give that antibiotic for, for that particular mm. uh, bacteria? And he'd say, uh, Dr. Barkey, that's a very good question. <laughs> And I say to you, uh, you'd give it for long enough. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to make the point that we have packaged antibiotics into this idea that, uh, you know, actually he's right because antibiotics don't always do the whole job. They really just subdue the bacteria until your own immune system can get on top of it. So, but the reason for mentioning Prof. Ford is because of what he said to me after particularly uh, a, a few years later, fast forward two years, and uh, I'd just written an exam that was quite tough, and I was very pensive on my way home, and I walked past the med school's uh, car park where he was, uh, um, you know, he parked his car, and he was getting his car, and he saw me. Now, I'd already moved on two years, and, uh, you know, I didn't come first in microbiology, I can tell you that, <laughs> um, so there's no reason for him to have remembered me, but he... He saw my pensive mood and he said, uh, How, you know, are you all right? And I said, well, it was a hard exam, Prof. And he said, um, he said, uh, you know, I just want to let you know, uh, Dr. Barkey, that um, uh, when you qualify, I'd be very happy to bring my family to you. You're going to be a fine doctor. Now, he didn't have to say that. And who knows if he meant it. But I reckon, you know, you said earlier about saving your life. I tell you, that, I've carried that with me when times have got hard, to 
to think that my old professor, so words matter, you know, and so they're important. And, um, and so it's important that you, you consider what you're saying. But nowhere in my training, to get back to your point, was I ever trained to see a patient and make a diagnosis in five minutes. Mm. I just mm. do not understand that. Mm. And, and I think it's interesting dynamics, though, because we are part of a, the real world. And TikTok and microwave, I call it microwave medicine, in that, and you, I think it's a discussion for, for everybody, not just doctors, of what we've created where we sort of market ourselves, you come to me, you know, I listen, I give you, you know, a whole meal or a whole diagnosis. It's all in a microwave sort of time frame. And everybody knows that microwave meals, while adequate, are not the same as, you know, grandma used to cook them. You know what I mean? Like where yeah. you sat around and you peeled the potatoes and had a conversation. And, and I think uh, most chefs... Um, you know, would say the same, that a good meal takes time and I, a good doctor-patient interaction takes a time. But we've got this kind of overlay of modern times where everybody's got this kind of expectation. And you say about antibiotics, you know, this is interesting. So let's bring it to New Zealand, for instance. Quite a few years ago, um, it came out that we were prescribing too many um, antibiotics and it was causing a problem, as you know. Overprescription of antibiotics, particularly for viral illnesses, you know, uh, promotes um, you know resistance. And so the Ministry of Health and Pharmac went, you know, eight nuts on printing pamphlets that you could hand to your patient that said, "Look, you're um, you you've got a viral infection. You don't need an antibiotic. You know, paracetamol fluids, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, will do just as good a job." And you were supposed to hand these out whenever you thought it was. So a couple of things that are interesting about that. First of all, and to digress a little bit, wherever you get more doctors, you get more asthma and you also get more antibiotics prescribed. So where you get lots of doctors in a place, remember there's a little bit of competition in our system, you know, mm. um, so they're going to give you kind of what you expect to get and, and you know, everything that wheezes is going to be asthma. So that's something to consider. Um, but, uh, but I can tell you that, so we all being majority of my colleagues are, you know, wanting to do the right thing. Really. They get up in the morning and go, I want to do the right thing. So when all of the powers that be tell you, you're prescribing to antibiotics and GPs, then, so you don't, well, would you believe that they don't longer do that because, because people just got really angry that they didn't get their antibiotics, you know. And they got a pamphlet and they were expecting an antibiotic. They simply went down the road to an after-out center and said, my doctor didn't do anything. So that, do you get what I mean? So yeah, yeah. what we've created is kind of a consumerism of medicine and mm. the consumer gets what he wants. And, you know, despite you telling them, and, and I, I, I don't think that's too hard to understand with the current sort of COVID situation where power of belief, you know, despite the science, is is stronger than even I can than I can counter with my witty charm and <laughs> and, and knowledge. Really, I, I can spend uh, you know ten minutes explaining why an antibiotic isn't indicated, and they'll listen carefully and they love their doctor. And at the end of that, they say, well, "Can you give me one just in case?" <laughs> so, so 
I think that the society has to take because we we love in the modern world to blame something when we don't understand something we we always blame and it's always one level above where you're at you know so uh, but, but society needs to think about what it's asking from its doctors mm. as much as doctors have to think about what they deliver yeah. and that's back to Socrates you have to self-examine and you have to be prepared to be wrong um, but our system doesn't allow for for doctors to say they're wrong I don't know if you agree with that statement, but it's kind of a dicey thing, you know, and you have to do it sometimes because you are wrong sometimes and you have to say, you have to own up with that. But how it's perceived by patients, well, I can't really say. I haven't sort of done a survey, but um, you're under pre under pressure to be right all the time and that's, you just can't be, not with the biological system. So I don't know how you, how you see that. I mean, yeah, so... It's, it's interesting. I, I obviously have got uh, friends and family in the in the, in the health system, mm. um, and so you know, and I I never get to know quite so many details or anything. But you know, you you can pick up on things, and we you know, in a work capacity, do quite a lot of work with um, you know what were DHBs, mm. um, and there's I think there's a lot of complaints in the health system about Stuff that's really, I mean, don't get me wrong, there, there are obviously things that, you, that, that rightly so you should complain about, uh, as with in any vocation. But I think with the medical practitioners, nurses, doctors, surgeons, you name it, there's an expectation that you won't ever get anything wrong, that you're not human. And that actually, I think it's probably because it's an emotional kind of thing, it's about my health or it's my family member's health, and so therefore can't afford to get it wrong mm. but actually we are we're not those drones that you know we'll, we'll get it right you know 99 million times out of however many right so the i think people have to realize that the value of the medical system is i think the human contact yes but the fact that it's contact with a human means that it's going to have errors right so air is human do you know how to the counteract of that is is building a relationship with them? I mean, if you have a good relationship with somebody who cares about you and for you and with you, you, you can always go back to your doctor. And one of the things that I work on as well is establishing the relationship and reminding patients that if they feel that I've missed something and I'm not really getting it right, that rather than just to complain about it, come and share that with me as soon as possible, as soon as the third thought occurs with them. And come and share that with me, and I'll do my utmost to try and correct it. Or if I can't, I mean, I have a duty of care to make sure that I find somebody who can. And so if we're stuck, mm. uh, but you you want to hear that from the patient. You you don't want to hear it from a colleague or something. Like, you want to you want to have the relation with patients who they feel look, you know, doc, I'm I'm just not sure you're there yet. You know, you're, you're struggling with this issue. So, yeah. but it reminds me of something else you said earlier with that point about anxiety. So so early on in my career, I was fortunate to read a book. It's kind of helpful to read books. Um, <laughs> it was before the internet. I mean, I had a Spectrum, was it ZX? ZX Spectrum. Yeah, yeah, a computer with 48K, and that didn't hold much. So I still had to use books. Uh, but I read a book called The Philosophy of Medicine. And um, 
really good book. I forget the authors, but um, it was written by three Danish uh, physicians um, and one philosopher. So no, two physicians and a philosopher, a gastroenterologist, a psychiatrist, and and one other, and I forget what the other one, mm -hmm. what the profession was. But, oh, and, and a philosopher, um, somebody with a PhD in philosophy. And their book was uh, written in English. It wasn't written in Danish and then translated. And they, they wanted to, they say in the forward that um, they wanted it written in English to have a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And they looked at some so, sort of of the paradigm of, of, of medicine in the West. And so they had to sort of go back a bit as to how we got here in the way we structured our, our medical systems. Yeah. And they asked the question, they were puzzled that at the time the book was written, which was in the late 90s um, or early noughties, I forget, uh, but it was around that time, about 20 years ago it was published, maybe a bit more. Um, when you look at the numbers, more people are consulting doctors now than any time in history. Um, but we've We've conquered, at least in, in the West anyway, let's, let's talk about the West for a moment. I, I know a little bit more about that. We've conquered some of the real hard issues there, like clean water and, uh, you know, overcrowding and not having our children work in coal mines and, yeah. you know, some of the, you know, and, and uh, wastewater and sewerage, all those things we've conquered. And so a lot of the things that were killing off our forefathers are no longer a problem. And yet... Uh, the population visits doctors more than any time in history. And so they explored that. And and they they sort of had to determine that it was an anxiety about health, was as, which is in itself is a health condition uh, that, that uh, you know, the modern person seems to suffer most from. Um, I mean, it's not an unreasonable or irrational Concern because if you listen to s statisticians, and I can feel it, you know, we're going to go on a tangent here. I can feel it. <laughs> you know, if we look at the st st statistics, you know, one in four New Zealanders will get cancer. Not necessarily uh, you'll die from it, but will get either a skin cancer or another minor cancer in their lifetime. So to say to people, look, don't worry, when, you know, that's. 25, you know, that's that's silly. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have to go at probability of actually dying from from cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's things like quad bikes you can fall off and mm -hmm. whole, your probability is is probably a lot less than this, you know, the stats would suggest. Um, yeah. And so it's the way you present information to the public. And I read a book called A Drunkard's Walk. Um, I don't know if I've told you this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating the story. It's a brilliant book. But it was written by an, a UCLA mathematician, and he was fed up with the way statistics were being used. And he felt that probability maths was a better way of presenting risk, like the insurance companies do. Mm -hmm. They look at this. And would you believe it was a medical episode that that was the the sort of inspiration for the book whereas he went and had an HIV test and he, and he mentions this in the book um, and was told by his, by his general practitioner 
that he had a one in 10 chance of having HIV. Uh, because that's what the stats were for false positives. You know, when, when the author said, look, you know, I'm, you know, there's no chance of this unless it's a shot from the blue. It, it's somebody who's, well, I was sleeping. Somebody did something to me. But, um, but uh, and, and he knew that that was incorrect, mathematically speaking. Mm. And it rated merely, because it created unnecessary anxiety for a minute. But when he started to explore it from a mathematical point of view, he discovered that his probability of having HIV in his his group of risk, at risk kind of people, which is that he had no risk, he wasn't in a high risk category, is what he's saying. It was more likely one in a hundred. See, which was you know one in ten to one in a hundred, which immediately would ease anybody's anxiety. You see, and so anxiety is a key driver of visiting doctors and. And the only thing that you can counter that with is good information. We're back to the whole COVID thing again and how you present information to people. And and unfortunately, our leaderships, and, and I don't know, is it only leaders or organizations or who it is, but statistics are the thing that they tell you about. And, you, and a lot of statistics are scary. Mm. But, but when you look at the probability of, anything going wrong. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't sort of be anxious about health, but then say to the world that actually in, in a lot of developed countries, you know, the age of death is, is stretching out further and further. And and I hope to live, I hope, I hope to live to a ripe old age, as do everybody. I mean, mm. um, so anxiety is a big thing. And I, I think in the way I try and deliver my message to to people is to try and, address that anxiety. Mm. And that's true of a lot of my colleagues. We are we are aware that people who come with minor things are anxious. And 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 by the way, that leads to technology and the internet. You know, where you're getting the information uh, uh, about health. And um and I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah. It's obviously I mean, got to exacerbate things, isn't it? If you go searching for stuff yourself, that's gotta increase the anxiety surely. It does, but it's also a reality. It's like um you know, one of my bugbears is when you meet um, people who are sort of in their eighties and they do things like, "I don't do cell phones." <laughs> you know, I don't. You know, I don't. You know, and when it's such a useful tool in many respects in health, it mm. can be a useful tool. It's got to be yep. one of the many things you do, and and so you have to sort of embrace the idea that we live in an age of the internet, and how do you incorporate that? Now, oddly enough, if you have the right attitude to that. There is an opportunity for learning there, mm. you know, and reassurance. Mm. But we're back to the thing we started this whole conversation with about, was to address somebody's fears after they've been on the internet about a symptom and they're coming to their GP more out of fear than actual mm. having a disease. Uh, it takes a long time to reassure them. Yeah. And it's how much time you're given in a system that demands that you see a certain number for a certain cost because you've got costs mm. and the opportunity to just sit down with somebody. Now, I I do believe that, look, at particularly at my age, that I am privileged to be able to be in a situation where I've got to the point where I say to people, look, if you wait a little longer in my waiting room, you're going to get just as much time as anybody else. And if I see that there's a need to 
do my job and reassure somebody, and that's going to take a little longer, but the outcome is going to be a good outcome. They're going to feel better, and they're going to feel that they've heard some, you know, uh, been to somebody who's listened. Mm. I'm prepared to take the flack for that. Uh, I just, I just don't believe I'll ever be able to be a six-minute doctor. No. I just, I just can't see how we could do this job in that amount of time. I mean, I think it's important for people to realise that, isn't it? You're talking about the patients that came in that were, you know, steam coming out of their ears because they've had to wait. And, and you turned up today with a book thinking I was going to get my arm back on you. Uh, <laughs> I bought but, one in the but, shop next door. <laughs> <laughs> but literally, I, I do. For me, I actually, it's a bit like a commute, right? You know, you've got that time, so what are you going to do with it? I, I know that if I turn up for an appointment with you, and this is not, you know, I, 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 this is a positive I thing, right? I know that if I turn up for an appointment with you, that uh, you'll be running late because you're giving the same level of service that you give to me to someone else. And I'm happy about that. Oh, and so, I, you know, so for me, I, I come prepared. I'll print some work or I'll bring a book. And that's that's a bit of me time. Downtime, yeah. That's also good. Well, I think if you were in London, you'd be commuting on a train for an hour. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just to get there. Yeah. So you could, um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, and it is, uh, I suppose, you know, that lovely saying it is what it is. It's, it's very... You know, one tries to improve one's idea. I, I, I don't believe in, I don't know why I find it necessary to say this, but I'm never complacent about where I'm at. I mean, I continually try and improve my um, my delivery and, you know, be a little more concise and, and work on it because, well, just because I think that every human being needs to do that. I mean, you need to work on yourself, be reflective, examine your life, the impact you're having on others, think you've got to try and tread quietly in the world and by that I don't mean not make your mark but not leave a scar mm. um, you know you, you want to leave something an essence of yourself but you don't want to leave a scar on the planet in any way whether it's a scar on other people's lives or on physically on the planet in terms of your footprint um, I mean it's just interesting how the world has changed and I'm quite grateful I don't know how you feel but because you're much younger than me yeah, I got that into the podcast. <laughs> I'll give you the fiber later. <laughs> I mean, there are things, you know, that you have to just get in there. And um, to have grown up sort of, uh, you know, formative years, and, you know, I was born in the 60s, uh, the early 60s, and um, and then gone through this lovely journey of technology and, and mm. change. And, and I, I'm not one to completely hark in the past, and everything was rosy in the past, but... Um, I, I, I'm quite enjoying the change going from, you know, I'm still wowed by things. Mm. I think I think that's the thing that keeps me interested in life. Yeah. Um, and and we've, I think we've talked about this, the fact that the next generation isn't as easily wowed. Mm. I mean, because mm. I'm wowed by the technology that's staring at me this afternoon. Um, and I wish I had one of these at home. <laughs> um, but... Uh, is that I still go, wow, you know, wow, it can do what, you know. Um, and I find with my children that they, they're they not easy. What I mean, I do remember my, I mentioned my first computer, you know, my Sir Clive Sinclair, <laughs> and and I got the 48K version. I think there was a, or was it, I had the 64K version and there was a 48K, I forget. Yeah. It was a while ago. And I was wowed by that. I was wowed that there was this thing in my house that I could program and to do things. It was just left me completely. And when the first one gigabyte 
computer came out, I was wowed. I was impressed. Um, and so I'm still wowed by the world I live in, and I'm still impressed by things that are happening. I mean, that's why I bought the books uh, that I did, um, is to remind me of where we were um, in, you know, in terms of physics and the learning and, mm. and where we are now, mm. and, and to celebrate that. Um, I was thinking the other day, um, you know, the, the New York, I mean, the American lotto is, um, is 1.6 billion. You know, and I love it when they say, oh, it's too much money, I wouldn't make a film. I'd find a few things to do. <laughs> I might struggle a little bit, I'd find a few things to do. Yeah. And, um, and what you could do with that in terms of changing people's lives. And I was thinking about what I would do with 1.6 billion. And and this is just off the... But I was thinking, what could I do with 1.6 million? And what I would do, one of the things I would do is that I'd go back to my university and I'd pay for every student who was studying physics, maths, or any science degrees, full degree, um, to just encourage people to keep keep on working at at those things. It's not that I don't value the arts, because then I felt kind of mean. I thought, oh, <laughs> I should really, I should really fund a few arts degrees. Yeah. Um, Your wife would have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I mean, as I was talking, I was thinking, oh, this is going to get me into trouble. Yeah. But um, I do value. But I suppose you can see my point. My point was to. To, to really encourage finding answers to the problems of the time, you know, to to make it easier for people to go into those fields and pursue a career of of knowledge and searching. And um, mind you, with one point six, maybe I just fund everybody's degree for a year or two, <laughs> and then I'd, I'd feel okay then. Yeah, I mean, um, but I think does that stem from the fact that you're con continuously learning? Yeah, I I think. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so much you've got to know. I mean, I bought two books. I'm, you saw the one book mm -hmm. about physics, thing. But the other book is about, um, uh, you know, it's about plants. Mm -hmm. And um, and I did want to buy a third book about the secret life of plants, but it only came in hardcover. And that's about how plants kind of communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, if there's such a thing, you can use that word. Um, yeah, knowledge just absolutely fascinating, and I'm still wowed by it. And there was a, um, there was a, a book again. We're back to this book thing. You just got to read about a time in science. So, so there are a few books that 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 are worth reading. Like one of the books was um, Jenny Uglow's book on the lunar men. Um, and I, I I've gone on a tangent there, but it was about First of all, um, the author is, is, um, was unusual when she started out as being one of the sort of foremost um, female scientific writers of mm. history. And, mm. and, uh, and so that is part of the reason I bought the book. I thought because all the other science history books I've read have been male authors. And I am aware from that lovely story of Newton's book that was translated into French by a female aristocrat, uh, which really, you know, is 
everybody should read about that, was I was curious about the perspective that may come with science. Because there's this ongoing controversy about in writing about history is whether you write it from you know, individuals who made history or whether those in individuals were beholden to a group of people, say, perhaps, who were pursuing the same thing, and they just happened to, and that out of context, they don't look as clever as we've got them looking, as, you know, um, mm. and that's an ongoing debate that we won't have here. But Jenny Aglow's book was about um, about the fact that in, in the mid-1800s, there was a group of men um, who were, and they possibly there were females present, I don't know, but they were a combination of the foremost scientists or philosophers, as it was in those days, generalists, uh, together with, with the foremost um, industrialists who were trying to find solutions uh, using machines. And they would get together on the full moon of every month. I think it was in Birmingham. Right. Um, and the reason they did that was because the, the city had yet to get streetlights. And so that walking to and from the meeting, you could walk by the full moon. I just thought that was really, <laughs> really neat idea. And they called themselves the Lunar Men. Right. And they got together and discussed science of the day. And, and then people who were involved in industry listened to those and then used the information to, to then sort of – one of the men present was Darwin's um, grandfather. I forget what he did, but he was involved in the world of discovery uh, before Darwin came along. And so that meeting of the minds um, was what gave birth in some respects to the sort of British or the, 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 the UK's industrial revolution. Um, you could almost um, say that that group of men sort of triggered a whole lot of industries with that uh, approach of, of industrialists meeting with scientists, mm. and um, and it's only to be encouraged. I and mean, we, I mean, I don't know. Do do we? I suppose we do that a bit now. I, I mean, in a lot of industries, they'll have a department of science that that does research and development. But the 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 problem with that is, whereas in the days of the lunar men, it was shared willingly and for knowledge's sake, mm. whereas now. A lot of knowledge is commercial, commercial. so it isn't shared. Yeah, you know, and it's yeah. it's changed the game. When you talk, talk about knowledge, like you said something to me one time, I think I can't remember the exact where you phrased it, but from a from a doctor's point of view, you use a term about I think something like refining your craft. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you know, like? You've been doing this, did you say, for 35 years? Mm. Are you still refining your craft? Is that something that oh, all yeah. doctors do? Or? Yeah, and it, uh, I mean, you just have to do that. Um, there is just knowing more facts. You do have to know your facts and new therapies. So there's a few things that come to mind about that. First of all, um, with the commercial model of general practice in this country, so, you know, we're getting a bit grumpy about it because hospital physicians will get a 40-hour week of which 16 has to be dedicated to paperwork and education. Okay. General practice, you get one hour a day. 
okay, to do all of your admin and soak up any new knowledge. Well, that's ridiculous. All your learning has to come in your own time because you're obliged by the college to find 50 hours a year to or thereabouts mm. to, to find it. And um, and that puts pressure on that, right? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a pressure right there where where you don't get enough time. And how, what does this lead to? Well, it leads to the, the – and then the governments of the day have allowed for direct-to-patient advertising. Plus, you've got COVID on top of that, and the governments will make announcements like, there's a new antiviral available COVID – just phone your GP and he'll give you some, you know. And you have yet to see the clinical data on the on the drug that you are now expected to hand out to your patients. Mm. You've not been afforded the courtesy of time to absorb the science, make up your own mind as a scientist on whether the studies are, are decent or not, before you're actually asked to deliver that to your patient and be accountable should anything go wrong with that delivery? Mm. I mean, that's that's an outrageous situation. Mm. Um, and and the way health is funded is that increasingly um, hospitals are seem to appreciate that in order to keep their their specialists. And I'm going to say something on a podcast now that's a little controversial. Is that in in GP world sometimes when we're feeling hard done by, mm. we don't call specialists specialists. We call them partialists because, <laughs> because they only see part of the body, yeah. and you can't really treat a person, <laughs> you know, as parts of a body. Mm. Um, but that's just when we're feeling grumpy. Yeah. Um, but you know, where they give this time because there's a um, there's an understanding that in order to stay on top of your game, you need that time to develop the academic part of mm. who you are. Mm. Um, whereas in general practice, the bonding model doesn't allow for any time, which is, mm. you know, there's nothing put aside for each patient that says, you know, we're going to give, you know, the primary care this much money and we're going to earmark a couple of million for GP education. And GP education is often time. You know, it's not like we need, there are lots of resources available, very available to mm. us. It's finding the time and some time is money. Yeah. So you have to fund that time in order to get it. But um, yeah, that's that's a political thing, isn't it? Mm. So can I ask you, Sean, about the comment you wrote about the partialists, right? And I think this, mm. I just want to pick up on that because I think there's something <laughs> in that. Obviously, they're looking at something specific and possibly because you or a doctor might have sent a patient in that direction to look at something specific. Well, we send them to a waiting list. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is there, is there a danger there? Uh, and I'm not quite sure yeah. how it works, but is there a danger there that they're looking at something in isolation and not looking at the whole body, which might actually tell them Absolutely. a different thing? Look, look, I, I think, I think they're quite happily over a, over a cup of tea. They'll acknowledge that, but not on a daily basis. I mean, they're right quite appalling letters at times to us and, and uh, of not looking at the whole person. And certainly, um, or, yeah, I mean, certainly they can't. I mean, they're also under certain constraints. But, but you know, there was a lovely book called The Greatest Gift to Mankind, back on the book thing. I'd encourage reading. <laughs> uh, Roy Porter, um, who unfortunately, he was, a, as far as I know, but, I mean, I'm open to correction. I think he was 
was a medical historian, but he wasn't a doctor. And I, th I think he's passed. He was in an accident, if I, if I recall correctly. But The Greatest Gift to Mankind was a book about the uh, history of medicine. And, um, and in the 1890s, if you were a specialist, you only looked at one, you were considered a quack, and you weren't invited to tea by the College of Physicians. Right. Uh, they felt that that was inappropriate to be just looking at one system. Um, so uh, you see where things have changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and would you believe that there's some data out there, and I, I don't want to be sort of held to my quotes, but Americans looked at this in terms of who were the best diagnosticians. So a couple of years ago, uh, the, the Medical Council um, you know, of New Zealand uh, sent out a thing saying, look, once you get to your 50s, a doctor, you better do a self-check for Alzheimer's. You know? Yeah, I mean, being a bit cheeky, but they kind of were like going, look, everybody loses their memory, and doctors, well, you know, you have to do a check of yourself if you're in your yeah. 50s and yeah. consider your, where you, when you're going to retire. And a great offense was taken by the general practitioner because the person who was saying that was a specialist. <laughs> when just a few weeks later, uh, out of America, the best diagnosticians, according to some paper, and they was in one of those lancets or something, suggest that the best diagnosticians were in their mid-50s and they were general practitioners. Because we, we call on on just all everything all the time and that's gotta be it's gotta be an advantage. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I could I could list, you know, specific uh, incidences where that lack of uh, I'll tell you a story because the story is a good way. So a gentleman saw me in a fracture clinic because I still do a bit of sports medicine and um and and he and he, he delightful and he's as he's since passed, a delightful man, um, um made um miniature low loaders, trucks, um, from scratch. Right. He lathed everything and then remote controlled them even gave them the sounds of the yeah. brakes, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, he, had, he had stepped in a hole and had injured his big toe. He had, he had a, a fracture of his, of his big toe. And, um, well, that was fine, but when he saw me, I, I, I was struck by the fact that below his knee, the whole leg was swollen. And I thought, I said, he said, well, that doesn't really hurt the swelling. It's the toe that hurts. So I, at, at my first glance, I kind of said, okay, well, he may have just sprained something or he's kept it immobile because of the fracture, and that's caused the swelling of his calf. So I treated the fracture in the standard way. There was nothing clever about that, and um, came back a couple of weeks ago, and, he, and his leg was more swollen. So I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, is this a – then I really – he didn't have any pain, though. That's, if he had a lot of pain, I might have immediately thought a clot or something of that nature, but – now I did start to worry that perhaps he had a asymptomatic uh, clot in his leg and banged him off for an ultrasound rather smartly and um, came back clear, no ultrasound. Just this toe that was broken. But this leg, and it was swelling was getting worse. I thought, okay, is this a vascular problem? What's something to do with his blood? Did he damage some blood vessels? So I started to send to the postures, I mean specialists, <laughs> for some advice. And he went to a vascular surgeon, and the vascular said, nothing to see here, it's a vascular problem. But didn't ask himself the question of, of where else could this come? Seemed totally, if it wasn't a vascular problem, he was completely uninterested. And then I needed some help on a, I was getting worried the leg was, I sent him to a general orthopedic surgeon, mm. uh, 
you know, maybe it was a complicated injury. And once again, I got this, it's not an orthopedic problem. But there was no curiosity by either of those specialists. There was no, you know, I've sent them a man with a swelling. They're doctors. Don't they have a curiosity about what's causing it? None at all. So he came back to his general practitioner. And I thought, um, I was getting worried because now it was above his knee, the swelling. I mean, something's progressing. Yeah. I, was, I was getting concerned. Yeah. A couple of weeks had passed. And so I decided the only other thing I'd learned by way back in med school was that something in his pelvis could be causing it. So that was the next step with kind of moved up his leg. And so I requested a, an ultrasound of his pelvis to see if there was something pressing on his vascular or his lymphatics in his pelvis. And you know the note I got back from the specialist radiologist? It was, uh, Sean, you're on a fishing expedition. <laughs> I said, thank you. That's what I'm supposed to But he wouldn't do the ultrasound. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't do he, it. he wouldn't do it. He said, he, I was fishing for something. So, uh, so I said to the patient, look, you really need one. And that was a referral to the public system. So he had every right to say no, apparently, you know, even though somebody with a fellowship think something should be done at the hospital, they can just say, no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I said to look, why don't you sell a kidney, because that's the price of an ultrasound, <laughs> and get yourself a private ultrasound, which he did. And he had, uh, he, he always was a middle-aged gentleman with a large abdomen. And he said that he always had a large abdomen. And when I palpated his abdomen, it was very resonant, like he had a lot of gas, but he had no pain or any other symptoms related to his gut. <laughs> when I did the ultrasound, he had a 22-liter bladder that was up to his up, up to his epigastrium. 22, 22 liters. And what had happened is that over time, his bladder had been quietly obstructing, even though he had continued to pass urine. He was insufficient. And that bladder was pressing on all his left-sided vasculature and causing the swelling in his leg. Good fishing expert. Because I found the cause, and yeah. and it was interesting because because he still passed urine, but it was always insufficient, and he had basically had a simple problem, which a lot of men get, um, excluding present company, you know, of a large prostate, mm. and that it quietly, and of course, he, he uh, unfortunately the delay in getting the diagnosis, you know, had meant that his renal function had deteriorated. Mm. Now, if there had been a tiny bit of curiosity, it didn't need to be. They didn't need to be clever; they just needed to be curious, mm. and and advance some idea. We may have been able to use that to get him an ultrasound done in the public system much sooner. Now, you know, we've all don't get me wrong; it, we've all made mistakes, and we're not always. I th the point I'm trying to make is that it's important to maintain that curiosity, that desire to know. And, and not to be satisfied with, with kind of um, – it goes to the way things are. For instance, to digress, so certain hospitals are teaching hospitals, and I did most of my sort of formative years in a teaching hospital. And we were told by the profs that nobody could leave the hospital without at least three possible diagnoses. You could not have a person come in with, say, pain and then leave with less pain without at least three possible causes for the pain. Mm. Now, that takes place in a, in, a, in a teaching hospital. 
in many situations where the hospital hasn't got any teaching capacity, it's literally, they have a different view. They will let a hospital go home, so they come with a lot of pain, and they leave with less pain, but nobody advances a differential of what caused the pain. Yeah. They don't, and, and what to do about, you know, like a short plan yeah. that's linked to those three. So a lot of it has to do with with a lot of what we talked about. It's about costs, time, investigate. You know, all of those things come to play. That people will be seen in a in a in a sort of second tier hospital. They'll come with a problem. They don't spend a lot of time on finding the answer because they don't have the resources to do that, or they're told not to. I'm unsure what what's going on, uh, and then they sent back to primary care that has less resources to actually get the diagnosis. And that leads to a situation where you get lots of people leaving the hospital and going back to GP for the answer, which is kind of odd because we're yeah. always sending people to the hospital for the specialist care to get the answer. Yeah. Can you see this yeah, yeah. S- silly roundabout? Um, so in the case of the guy with the 22-liter bladder, bladder, if you hadn't have been curious... What would have happened in that case? Or, well, he was, you know, his kidneys had, uh, you know, he would have gone into renal failure. Then was where it was yeah. heading. But the specialist who said, or the specialist radiologist who said, you're, you're on, on a fishing, fishing expedition. Yeah, yeah. damn right I am. Yeah, that's right. Because I thought it was the If you don't complaint. find the answer, yeah. what do you do? Send the guy away so we don't know what it is. Yeah, I, 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 I don't. You don't challenge uh, your, your your specialist. You, you'll you'll not survive in town if you. Do that. <laughs> Um, but there was, um, I, I, you know, but the, you get lots of odd things said to you. Like one of my colleagues said, and I sat down in the tea room and I went, oh, sure. That was a hard morning. And he said, Sean, you know what your problem is? You're too kind to your patient. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> what? So like, like he was, t- you know, he was giving, he was an older doc. He's still there. Uh, and he kind of went, too kind to your patients. You've got to learn not to be so kind. And it just blew me blew me away. I mean, I kind of understood what he was saying, that, um, I mean, you have to be, you know, you can't give everybody an hour, if you know what I mean. You have yes. to get a move on. But but I also thought it was indicative of something that's happened within the profession. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like and, and it is the time thing. It's very hard to be kind in five minutes. Isn't it? I mean, well, you can to, do to, it. You can come across genuinely. Yeah, like that's you right. Care. You know, I mean, it's about care, right? Yeah, you it's care, about care. And that's it. You see, it's it's a lovely conversation, and we, you know, I mean, there there are. I, I'm no expert um, at all. I mean, I've worked in a few health um, systems, and and you do hear rumors. I mean, I'm curious again. There's that word again. I'm, I'm curious about because I hear that in parts of the world. Uh, they are doing it a little better in, in you know, parts of Europe where where a general practitioner will only have sort of 500 patients on his book and everybody gets off an hour. And, and as a result of that, they've discovered that they do less uh, unnecessary blood tests because they've got the time to, you see, what happens sometimes is if you're in a rush, because you can't give the caring and the time to get the diagnosis, you just, oh, I'll do a few blood tests. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. that costs a lot of money. Yeah when the blood tests aren't necessarily indicated mm. and they just come back normal yeah. without you advancing uh, the, the diagnosis. Mm. And um, 
Whereas if you had more time to to talk to your patients, educate them, you know, the pros and cons of doing blood tests, et cetera, et cetera, mm. you do less of them. So you, there's a saving there. Mm. So I've heard that that is – the person who told me that, that was in Germany um, where um, uh, we had a German uh, general practitioner come and work in New Zealand and he was astounded at the expectation that he was expected to see 25 to 30 patients a day. He, he just floundered. He just didn't know how we had managed that. And was it, it was kind of fun to talk to him where he said, no, no. And he also was struck by the number of tests we do, whereas they see less for longer and actually economically that works out just fine. Mm. And he gets paid more. So some of the savings go from not doing the tests, <laughs> going to his salary, which really appeals to me. Um, <laughs> but, but so I can't sort of, uh, you know, I'm making statements that would suspect that I sort of have a whole world, you know, I know what's going on in the Western part of the world. And, and really, I can only talk about my little world and the constraints that I find uh, prevalent. But it's just, it's just being human, really.